Our sermon text for this evening is from Matthew 27, verses 27 through 56. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple... And rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from that cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Will you pray with me? Our Father, as we've already said, we come to you this evening to meditate on the work of Jesus, our Savior, to consider what Jesus has done in the cross, to Think about his suffering and death for us. And 
Father, I pray that as uh, we look into your word now that you would soften our hearts and open our hearts and uh, help us to be open to better understanding, to better seeing what Jesus has done, that we might more fully rest in his grace found in the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Very few people don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. There are some, of course. Actually, Muslims believe that God would not possibly have allowed Jesus as a prophet to suffer the shameful death of crucifixion. And so, uh, at least some Muslims believe that Judas died on the cross in Jesus' place with Jesus' face. Uh, I'm not making that up. That's, that is part of what they teach. But while lots of people debate and discuss and doubt the resurrection of Jesus, relatively few doubt that he died, and few doubt that he died on a cross. There's no reason to doubt these things. A crucifixion was common in those days. The ancient Roman historian and Senator Tacitus wrote this about Jesus within a century of his death. He said, Christus, he mistook this as Jesus' name rather than title. He said, Christus, from whom the name Christian had its origin, uh, suffered the extreme penalty, that is, crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. You can see Tacitus was no fan of Christianity, but one thing he had no reason to do as a second century historian was doubt the crucifixion of Jesus. Of course, understanding that the crucifixion happened is one thing. Understanding why it happened is quite another. What was happening at the cross? Was it the noble death of a martyr? Or was it the tragic end of a wasted life? To read this story rightly, we have to understand that it is dripping with irony. Now, I'm always afraid to use the I word uh, because it's so easy to get it wrong. And if I get it wrong, don't come after, up to me afterwards and tell me. Just, just let it go. Uh, but uh, if irony is anywhere, I'm pretty sure it is here in this chapter. Uh, there is situational and structural and historical and dramatic irony all over the place uh, in this story. We, the readers, understand the situation far better than those who are in it, particularly because we live on this side of the resurrection. The Roman soldiers, the passers-by, the religious leaders, they all say the most profound things, but they have no idea of the deep truth of their words. This story looks like the defeat of an apparently weak, helpless, and insignificant man. He is mocked, shamed, crucified, abandoned, and dies. But to understand what is happening, we have to see in that the victory of King Jesus. We talked about Jesus' kingship on Palm Sunday, and uh, we're going to talk about it on Easter morning as well, uh, but we're going to talk about it tonight also. And that's in part uh, just because that is who Jesus is. He is the king. 
But it's also because Matthew's gospel, which we have been reading through, is centered on this idea that Jesus has come as the Son of God, the King of Israel, to shepherd the nations. And so we come to uh, look at King Jesus this evening. We'll look at, at the reality of King Jesus, the method of King Jesus, the victory of King Jesus, and the accomplishment of King Jesus. That's not in your bulletin. Uh, so you'll have to remember it or write it down, the, the reality, the method, the victory, the, and the accomplishment of King Jesus. First, the reality. Uh, we jump into the middle of this story, but we've been following it this evening from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane to his betrayal and arrest and trial and condemnation. At this point in the story, the, the governor Pontius Pilate has literally washed his hands of Jesus and delivered him over to be crucified. The soldiers take him, strip him, clothe him in a scarlet robe, place a crown of thorns upon his head and a reed in his hand. They are clothing him as if a king. Now, they don't believe Jesus is a king. They are mocking him, making fun of Jesus. Oh, you're a king, are you? So they dress him up as a king. They, they kneel before him and mock him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Notice the irony. I don't know whether this is uh, structural irony because the soldiers have no idea what they are doing or historical irony because what seemed like a meaningless joke turned out to be the most profound truth in history or dramatic irony because we know what's going on and we're just waiting for Jesus to be revealed for who he really is. But whatever the case, there is some kind of irony going on here. Here is Jesus, the true king, being mocked as if he were a king. They know not what they do. And when they are done uh, spitting on him and beating his head with the pretend royal scepter, they strip him of his pretend royal robes. They put his own clothes back on and they take him out to be crucified. Again, don't miss the irony. Don't miss what Matthew is telling us. He is telling us Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is clothed as a king in verses 28 and 29. He is hailed as a king in verse 29. The sign over the cross says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, in verse 37. The people will mock him as the son of God and king in verses 40 and 42 and 43. And by this relentless repetition of the mockery of Jesus as king, the actions and words of people who, who just can't believe something so absurd, this a king? Never. And by those very words, Matthew is telling us this Jesus is the true king. That's the reality of King Jesus. Second, the method of King Jesus. They take Jesus out of the city to be crucified. This fulfills the repeated Old Testament regulation for taking a condemned man outside the city to execute him. But Jesus apparently is so weary from his nighttime arrest, his all-night trial, his being beaten before the Jewish council, his being paraded before the crowds, his being scourged before Pilate, his being mocked and beat again by the soldiers, he simply has no strength left in him. Surely the soldiers were not having pity on him, which means truly Jesus could not carry his cross was the last act of a condemned man in Rome. And so they compel a passerby to carry the cross for him. 
Some offer Jesus wine mixed with gall, apparently as a sedative. And Proverbs 31.6 says, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. But Jesus doesn't take it. His, His work is not done. He needs his wits about him to finish what he started. They strip off Jesus' uh, clothes, they divide them, they cast lots, uh, fulfilling perfectly Psalm 22:18, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Then the guards sit and watch. They have done their harm, but more are on the way. The passers-by enter the scene, and the religious leaders, and they begin to mock. Again, Psalm 22, uh, verse 7 says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And notice what the mockers say. It's so important. Look at verses 40 and 42 and 43. Verse 40, they say, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Again, irony. They don't understand how true their words are. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. But don't you see, that is what Jesus is doing. Right now, he is destroying the temple, his body on the cross. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. But that is exactly what the son of God cannot do. Jesus, as the son of God, the king of Israel, is right now doing his kingly work. They say, if you are the son, come down. But because Jesus is the son, he cannot. They say he saved others. He can't save himself. And that's exactly right because he saves others by not saving himself. He must die if others are to live. He must suffer if others are to enter glory. He must be lost if others are to be saved. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. But if he comes down, he is not worthy of the title king. They say he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And of course, Jesus does trust. And he has entrusted himself to his father in the garden. He said, not my will, but yours be done. God does delight in his son precisely because he came to do not his own will, but the will of God who sent him. Jesus is right now doing what pleases the father, offering himself a sacrifice for sins. So the method of King Jesus is he he comes to obey where we disobeyed. He comes to submit to the Father's will where we rebelled. He comes to die that we might live. He comes to receive judgment that we might receive mercy. He comes to be rejected that we might be reconciled to our Father. Most kings come to kill their enemies. Jesus comes to die for his. Even the criminals on either side of him revile him. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus came to identify with sinners, to be numbered among the transgressors, to die among thieves as if a thief. Why? 
because in that way he frees his people. As a king, he comes to fight for us by dying for us, to free us from sin and wrath and hell. He identifies with us in our sin that we might identify with him in his righteousness and life. So that's the reality of King Jesus and the method of King Jesus. He comes not to kill his enemies, but to die for them, to identify with sinners that we might identify with him and his righteousness and glory. And third, the victory of King Jesus. At this point in the story, darkness covers the earth. Some say that, that uh, Roman astrologers in that day noted the darkness and puzzled over its source. It was the wrong time of the month for an eclipse. There was, this was no ordinary darkness. It was the darkness of death and judgment. The prophets prophesy darkness on the day of judgment, and here it was. The day of judgment had come, and here the sun itself hid its face from the horror of what was happening. And at the end of that darkness, the end of that judgment, at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22.1. But we shouldn't understand it as if Jesus is here quoting scripture on the cross, you know, reciting his scripture memory verse. No, Psalm 22.1 acts as a prophecy. Jesus is crying out in anguish. The pain has brought confusion and he wonders, why have you forsaken me? Of course, the irony here is that the moment of Jesus' greatest weakness is the announcement of Jesus' victory. The worst moment in history is the reason we call this Good Friday. The Father forsook the Son, meaning God in that moment turned his back on Jesus of Nazareth as a radical, as a judicial punishment for the sins of humanity. This is the moment, the, the worst of moments when Jesus paid the price for our sin, when the wrath of God was fully poured out on the Son. This is the moment of victory. You see, often we think of the resurrection as Jesus' victory. And in a sense, that is true. But in another sense, the resurrection is the award ceremony. The victory is where the runner uses all of his strength to overcome his enemies and, and push ahead of the rest and win the race. Victory is always sweaty and dirty and painful and messy work. This is Jesus' moment of triumph. His moment of greatest weakness is the announcement of his victory. God has forsaken him for us. Redemption accomplished. The bystanders don't quite understand. They think that Jesus is calling for Elijah. Uh, they move to give him sour wine, fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 21. His great struggle under God's wrath was done. Like an athlete after a great competition, Jesus quenches his thirst. Verse 50 simply says that Jesus then cried out and gave up his spirit. The other gospels tell us that Jesus cried out, it is finished. His work is now accomplished. And then Jesus said to his father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That is, he yielded up his spirit to his father. This is the victory of King Jesus. He went to the cross and was forsaken by the father for us. It is finished. Which brings us to our last point. That's the reality and the method and the victory of King Jesus Fourth, the accomplishment of King Jesus. 
Verse 51 tells us that the temple curtain was torn in two. And this was no small feat. Uh, that The curtain either refers to the curtain which separated the outer court of the temple from the holy place, or perhaps more likely uh, separated the holy place from the most holy place. Either way, the curtain was inches thick. And so the tear was clearly miraculous. It didn't just happen. Even the earthquake would not likely have torn such a curtain in two. And either way, whichever curtain it was, the theological meaning is actually the same. The way into God's presence is open. What Jesus accomplished for us on the cross is reconciliation with our Father in heaven. Since we have such a great high priest, the writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near to the throne of grace. Jesus has opened the way to the throne of grace. What separated God from us has been torn apart. Jesus, by his death, has accomplished reconciliation with our Father. The earth itself shakes with joy. Rocks split. Tombs are opened. And Matthew tells us, astonishingly, in verse 52, that many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And yet it seems that they did not come out of their tombs until after Jesus' resurrection, at which point they went into Jerusalem and appeared to many. It seems the death of Jesus brought about the resurrection of the saints. This, of course, was symbolic and temporary. To be sure, they, we assume, died again at some point. But the point is made, Jesus' death brings life. Not just spiritual life now, though that is true, but resurrection life, body and soul on the last day. One of the centurions there, keeping watch over Jesus, sees all of this and is filled with awe, and he says, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, some believe that it should be translated, uh, truly, this is a son of the gods. He is a pagan centurion, after all. But again, don't forget the irony of this chapter. Even if the centurion doesn't understand how true his words are, we can understand. This is Matthew's narrative conclusion to the crucifixion. Truly, really, indeed, this was the Son of God. Make no mistake, this is, this, is, this is the way Matthew wants us to read this story. This is what he wants us to conclude from this story. And he puts it on the lips of this centurion. This is what Matthew wants you to walk away with. Truly, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one to come. The Son of David, who would be the Son of God, who is the King of Israel. He has opened the way to the Father and defeated death on our behalf. He is the Son of God. Worship Him. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to see. Help us to see what the centurion probably couldn't imagine. Help us to see what the soldiers who mocked Jesus and knelt before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, did not believe. Help us to see Jesus as the king who has come to defeat sin and death for us and help us to believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.